0: Amen. Lord, we thank you that you truly are an awesome God, holy, perfect, righteous. And Lord, we pray that right now you would move within every heart that is here, that Lord, that you would be our teacher this morning. We thank you for your word, that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. And may may you, the holy and awesome God, minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Good to have you here. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you're going to need one. Raise your hand, we'll get you one. Feel free to take that home as our gift. If you don't have a Bible at home, if if you like that one better, please take it. This morning we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, picking up in verse 9 where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We're continuing to look at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Just by way of quick review, we want to talk about Corinth. It was an extremely carnal and wicked city. It was a city that was known as the sin city of its day. If you were a crazy, out-of-control party animal, they would call you a Corinthian. And so, Corinth was a place that was filled with idol worship. It was a place that had sexual immorality running rampant. And in the midst of that, Paul had planted a church five years earlier that for a moment of time, was really serving and seeking after God, but sadly, over time, began to be more and more like the world. Instead of them impacting Corinth for God, Corinth was impacting them, and they were becoming more and more like the world. They were getting caught up in the vain philosophies of men. The Greeks were into philosophy. We'll talk about that this morning. They were caught up in sexual immorality. They were suing each other and taking each other to court before unbelievers. They didn't have a true biblical understanding of God's plan for marriage. They were abusing their freedom in Christ, even stumbling others using what they consider to be their own freedoms. They were ignoring God's divine order in the church and in their homes. They were abusing their spiritual gifts. They were using them in a way that brought gratification to themselves. God gives us gifts that we might minister to others. Not so that we might have the, you know, all the emotion, and again, emotion's a great thing, and God gives us emotion, but emotion without truth is, is void of anything. And the same was true, they were all caught up and whipped up in the emotion, but they were not reaching out and ministering to others. Paul told them that any gift they had, that they did not minister in love, was nothing more than, a, than noise. It was a clanging cymbal It ministered nothing. And there was abuse of different gifts. The gift of tongues was being abused. You know, the spiritual gifts, again, are to build up the body and to draw attention to the Lord, not to draw attention to you. Hey, here at Calvary Chapel, we want you to use your spiritual gifts. And I believe every spiritual gift that's in the Bible is still alive and well today, and God desires that we use it. Amen? But at the same time, when we use those gifts, the attention should go to God, not to us. Some people once in a while say, hey, Pastor Dave, can I get a banner and run up and back and forth in the front during worship? No. No, you can't. Why? Because everybody's going to be looking at you. Amen? Now, I want you to lift up your hands in worship. I want you to praise God. I want you not to be ashamed. We should not be. We should have hearts to worship Him. But we should not be worshiping Him in a way where everybody's looking at us and not looking at God. And that was happening in Corinth, and they were all speaking in tongues at once, and it was out of control, and the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. The Holy Spirit is a God of order. He even says, I would rather speak five words with understanding than that I might teach others, in 10,000 words in a tongue. And so there was all these abuses in Corinth, chasing worldly philosophy, sexual immorality, suing each other, didn't understand marriage, ignoring God's divine truth. But you know what, I believe the root of all of their problems is in 1 Corinthians 15, because this is the greatest travesty, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but what happened in Corinth is there was a group called the Epicurean philosophers. You don't need to study that or anything, but let me just tell you who these people were. They were philosophers who taught that there was no eternity, there was no heaven, there was no hell, live for today. They had a saying that is still popular today, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so this philosophy was running rampant through Corinth, and it started to get into the church. And there were even people in the church that began to question whether or not there was a resurrection, whether or not there was an eternity. By the way, I don't get it. How can you be, a, be religious at all if this is it? I don't get it. And I talk to people all the time and say, oh, well, this is the life, man. This is it. You know, I think that uh, John Lennon must have been an Epicurean, right? Imagine there's no heaven, right? Well, you found out there is one. Amen? And you know what? There is a heaven and there is a hell and the resurrection is true. And the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15, what does Paul talk about? The proof and the truth of the resurrection. That it's not something to be debated. It's not something to be doubted. It is the truth. And he gave numerous proofs that the resurrection had indeed taken place. And the greatest of all those proofs were first, the Lord had testified that he would raise. And you know what? When Jesus says something, then that's it. Amen? God says it. That settles it. But also, not only did he proclaim that he would rise, he said, you know, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. He said, we're going into Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to be persecuted, and they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to raise up. And he repeatedly told them, but also the, the, attention, the other proofs are that there was an empty tomb. Those you who have been to Israel with us, we're going back again next year about 14 months from now, you go to the tomb and you go inside and guess what? Jesus isn't there. Amen? Everybody else's grave, we dig it up, we find bones or what used to be bones. But Jesus Christ is a risen and a living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death and the truth of the resurrection. Not only was the tomb empty but he was seen by the Apostles and once they saw him their lives were radically changed. They went from guys hiding from everybody to those who were boldly proclaiming the truth to everybody. Guys who were afraid of a little girl standing around a fire to men who spoke boldly to thousands and didn't care what happened to them. All of them, with the exception of John, were martyred for their faith. And they tried to boil John in oil, but he just wouldn't die. So they tried to kill them all, and what radically changed them? They saw the risen and living Savior. He was witnessed by over 500 people at a single time. We know, again, just so much proof of the resurrection. So the first eight verses, he talks about the truth of the resurrection. Now this morning, we're going to pick up with the significance of the resurrection. We're going to talk about the power in the life of the individual believer. We're going to talk about the importance of the resurrection to all of us. And then finally, we're going to talk about the fruit, or the promise, of the resurrection itself. So I titled the message today, The Significance of the Resurrection. And we're going to pick up, in verse 9, looking first at the power of the resurrection and the life of the individual believer. Let's begin in verse 9. He just shared with them the truth of the gospel, the truth of the resurrection. Of course, the gospel is a key component of the, res- of the gospel itself. And now, this is Paul speaking, and he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles. Now, you need to understand, these were not words of false humility. You ever meet people like that? Yeah, I'm no good. And they tell you that because they want you to tell them, No, no, really, you are good. And that, that's not Paul's heart at all. Paul truly believed that he was the least of the apostles. Now, if we look at it from an outward statement, we'll realize that Paul himself was probably the greatest of all the apostles. If you look at just the fruit of his ministry. But it's interesting to see Paul, because Paul, his name means small or little or least. And prior to his salvation, his name was Saul, which means demanded of or highly acclaimed. So he went from being highly acclaimed, demanded of, to little or least. And as Paul continued in his faith, he continued to become more and more humble. The more in love he grew with God, the more he came to know God, the more humble it made him. Now, if, you're, if you've been a Christian the longer you're, you're walking with God, you become more and more arrogant and self-righteous, you need to repent. Amen? Because that's not, it doesn't make you sick when you see people walking around self-righteous. Hey, who am I apart from Christ? I'm one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. I'm a sinner saved by grace and so are all of you. Amen? And so we need to be more humble, and we see it very clearly because here he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Later he would say, I'm the least of all the Christians. And then after that, finally in 1 Timothy, he would say, I'm the chief of sinners. So the more he grew in his faith with God, the more he realized how desperately he needed God. And that should be every one of our hearts. Not thinking we've arrived. Well, I'm been a Christian 35 years. I got a nail. You're new, I'll fill you in, right? Yeah, I used to be real excited about God when I was new too, but you'll relax at some point, right? Hey, we ought to have zeal and more zeal and more humility the more we walk with God. And Paul was an example of that. The longer he lived, the more he grew spiritually, the more he became aware of his own sin and his desperate need for the Lord. In the light of his holiness and his infinite grace, spiritual Maturity produces humility and brokenness, not arrogance and a self-righteous attitude. The better we get to know Jesus, His character, His holiness, His perfection, the more clearly, again, we see our desperate need for Him. You know, it's when there's less of us, less of our will, less of our plans that God can use us. You know what? He gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. You want God to use you? Be desperate for Him. Realize you can't do it without him. My my daily prayer is, Lord, I'm desperate for you. Lord, help. Good prayer, by the way. Every time, during the last worship song, when you guys are worshiping, I'm praying, Lord, for the sake of your people, use this knucklehead. Amen? Use this imperfect marred vessel, Lord, for the sake of your people. We need to be humble and desperate for God. That's when God will use us. Sometimes we think, well, I've got to memorize the Bible. I've got to have my life perfect. Well, you'll never get used then because your life will never be perfect. Amen? And Paul was, I'm the least of the apostles. He's writing this letter to the Corinthian church and he's writing it with a heart of humility. He says there, I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle. Now, why does he say he's not worthy? What is an apostle? An apostle was one who was sent by God with a commission. Now, it's important to note that an apostle, one of the key components of an apostle, is he must have been an eyewitness to the risen Christ. Had to have been. Guess what? There aren't any apostles anymore. There aren't. Now, some people might might debate that. That's okay. There aren't. Because they had to have seen Jesus risen. And if you haven't, unless you're 22,000 years old, amen, amen, So there aren't apostles anymore, but the closest thing to an apostle today, I believe, would be a missionary. Somebody sent out with a commission by God, with a passion and a burden for specific people, anointed by the Lord to fulfill that ministry. That was Paul. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles and I'm not even worthy to be an apostle. Now is he saying that because he wasn't qualified? No. You know why he's saying that? He's saying that because he knows his own past. He knows The things that he had done prior to salvation. Look what he says. Because I persecuted the church of God. Now when you look at Paul, I want you to be encouraged by just the power of the resurrection in the life of the individual. Because Paul was a man, Saul of Tarsus, who was about as bad as you could get. He went from one of the most ungodly men to one of the most godly men. And that should be an encouragement to every one of us in this room that no matter where you are spiritually, that God can use even you. He says, I persecuted the church of God. Let me tell you a quick bit about that. Saul of Tarsus, prior to salvation, was the Jew of all Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He had, you know, he had all the letters behind his name. You know, he wore the robes. He was a man that everybody looked at as being religious. And this guy was zealous. This guy was sold out for Judaism. And he was so sold out that when Christianity started to rise up, he went and got letters to give him the approval to go out, and, go out and hunt down the Christians and drag them back by any means necessary to either have them martyred or have them thrown in prison. This was the passion of Saul of Tarsus's life. When Stephen, the first martyr, was killed, Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, was there holding the coats, no doubt cheering them on while they were stoning Stephen to death. Now this is Paul, the Apostle, The one who wrote most of the New Testament, inspired by the Spirit, but the hand that God used to write most of the New Testament. And here's this guy holding coats, cheering, while they're stoning Stephen to death. Not only that, he then went out and persecuted all believers, hauling men and women to prison, breathing threats of murder against them, against the disciples of the Lord. And he was headed to Damascus on his way to get some more Christians. And what happened? He's riding on his horse, he's got soldiers with him, he's ready to go get a hold of some Christians and drag them back so they can be either killed or imprisoned, and he meets Jesus there. He gets knocked off his high horse, he lands on the ground, he looks up and says, Lord, who are you, Lord? Now he didn't know his name yet, but he knew his power, amen? And he's on the ground and he's looking up and saying, Lord, who are you? And Jesus says to him, I am Jesus whom you persecute. And Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? One thing I like about Saul, he was really zealous, but he got the point pretty quick. Amen? He got knocked off his horse, and you know what? He was blind. He had to be led into the city. Instead of charging in with power, he was led in by the hand, blind. And he ends up being ministered to by a man by Ananias that God brings to him, and then he is now staying with the very people he was coming to arrest. He's sitting with them and they're all like, dude, I don't know about this guy. I heard about him. You even see it in the text where they just say, Man, we've heard about this guy. He's no good. Ananias, the Lord, tells him, I want you to go minister to him. He goes, Minister to him, I'm going to go hit him with a stick. He man, he was I heard he was there when Stephen was stoned. He's been whipped, he took some of my people. I'm going to get after him. He's blind? Good, right? But God said, No, I want you to go minister to him, and he did. And his life was transformed. And that's why he says, you know what, I'm not even worthy to be an apostle. I used to go after Christians. And now, I'm I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's only by his grace that God can use me. And what's interesting is they laid hands on Saul, not the hands they might have wanted to. Right? No, they laid hands on Saul, and the scales fell from his eyes, and... The Holy Spirit came upon him, and he was baptized, and what's interesting is right after that, he went into the synagogues, and he started preaching Jesus. And the very people who he had gotten letters from to go persecute Christians now wanted to kill Paul. So what a you want to talk about a radical transformation? Salvation brings transformation, amen? The Holy Spirit in your life should make you totally different than the person you used to be. Saul of Tarsus, the greatest earthly enemy of the church, became the Apostle Paul, I believe, the greatest example of a Christian who ever lived. From God's enemy to his child, from being blind and zealous for a lie to enlightened by the truth, to evangelist, pastor, church planter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the one who authored more books than any other man. And this just should encourage every one of us. How many of you have gone out killing Christians? Raise your hand. I'm thinking nobody, right? So all of us are starting better than Saul, amen? But you know what? God used a man like that, and God can use you and me. But it's the power of the resurrection in the life of the believer that transforms us. And Paul's life was radically impacted by the grace of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul gave the grace of God all the credit for the change in his life. He was a changed man, forgiven, cleansed, full of love when he was once filled with hate. But in spite of his radical transformation, he gave God the glory. You know, God was long-suffering with Saul. Have you ever looked at somebody and thought, why doesn't God just smoke that guy? Am I the only person who's ever thought of that? You see somebody on TV and they're like, Lord, just, just nuke him. Just to have an A-bomb lander in his house, right? Every time you see Osama bin Laden tape, you know what I mean, right? And you see stuff and you think, but you know what? God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering, and aren't you glad he's long-suffering with you? Amen? We want justice for everybody else and mercy for us. Amen? Smoke that guy, be patient with me. Amen? And so often we don't understand God's full and ultimate plan, and we need to learn to trust his will, because God, if you had looked at Saul, they thought, Lord, why don't you smoke this guy? God said, I'm not done with him. I'm going to use him in a mighty way. I've got great plans for his life. Don't stop praying for those people that are persecuting the church right now. Don't stop praying for the people in your life that are so contrary to God. Know that God can radically transform their lives and use them in a mighty way. His grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God." Paul said, you know what, his grace towards me changed me. Once he understood God's grace, it produced good works and a heart for ministry. Paul's radical salvation produced a radical transformation. And it says here that he labored more than any of the apostles, and that's absolutely true. Have you ever followed the life of Paul? I get tired reading about what he did. He started reading, he went to this ship and this missionary journey and then a shipwreck and then a thing and got stoned to death and got back up went back in the city and then they whipped him and they put him in prison and then he didn't eat. And, then it, and you're thinking, man, I'm tired reading what happened to this guy. And often we want the testimony of Paul without the tests of Paul. We want to be used mightily by God, but Lord, don't have me go through any difficulty because that's where without a test there can be no testimony and difficulty is an opportunity for God to work. And we need to learn to understand that. And Paul, understanding God's grace realized that all good in him was only by the grace of God. It had nothing to do with him. Paul's heart wasn't, man, look how much I've improved. Look how many good things I've done. Man, I'm pretty sweet. God's blessed to have me, right? And sometimes you see that in believers. Man, I'm growing so much. I'm reading my Bible more. And again, we should read the Bible. We should do those things. But understand this. We don't pray, give, study, and do good works so God will respond to us. If you're doing that, you've missed it. I need to pray more so God will respond to me. I need to read my Bible more so God will hook me up with some favors. Maybe he'll bless me and give me the promotion if I read my Bible more. You know, I should go to church on Sunday every week because, you know, then I'll have some, you know, I'll put it in the brownie point with the Lord. When I pray, he'll hear me better. You know what? We don't pray and give and do good works so God will hear us so we can find favor with God, we pray, we study, we give, we do good works in response to what He's already done for us. Amen? He's already done it. And what he's already done should prompt us, man, Lord, you're such a gracious, a loving, and a merciful God. How can I not gather with your people? How can I not praise you when I wake up in the morning? How can I not begin my day in your presence? How can I not seek your face for every decision that I make in life? Lord, in response to what you've already done, how can I not come after you with my whole heart? Remember, it's not faith or works, or faith plus works. It's faith that works. Amen? Faith in God produces works. It produces a transformed life. And grace shouldn't produce passiveness, but boldness. You know what? I want to say this really clear. Guys, do you know that we're going to heaven? And do you know your life is but a vapor? And do you know that Christ could come back tomorrow? Do you know that? What's the answer? Amen. So guess what? Why are we so ashamed? Why are we so afraid? Why do we dial down the gospel? You know, it's so sad because the world is dialing up the lie to, the ten, to volume 10, aren't they? Everything in the world, take God out of this, take God out of that, shut those Christians up, right? You know what, every time something like that happens, it makes me wanna say one thing, charge, amen? Because you know what? When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is gonna matter. And that grace should produce boldness, not passiveness. Not the, I got my get out of hell free card, I'm good. I'm gonna go home and play Xbox till the Lord comes back or whatever, right? I'm good, I'm going to heaven, my name's in there. But don't, aren't you burdened for the lost? Do you really grieve? Are you brokenhearted for people that don't know Christ? We ought to be. Because the Lord is. Amen? And our heart ought to be the same. Overwhelmed by the love of God and the power of the resurrection in the life of the believer, Paul's life was transformed radically. Yet not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Whether Paul or one of the apostles brought the message, the result was always the same. They boldly preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The early Christians believed in the resurrection. They preached it with boldness. And the word we preach is is written in a tense that they preach it constantly. They talked about the resurrection all the time. And as we're going to see here in a moment, as we continue on through the text, that that's one of the things that's under attack today. There are actually people that say it doesn't matter whether or not you believe in the resurrection. You know, as long as you believe in Jesus, that's good. You know, if he died and he didn't raise up, that's okay. As long as you believe in, well, as long as you believe in something. Heard that before? You live in Santa Cruz, so I know you have, right? As long as you believe in something with your whole heart. Well, we want to move on from the radical transformation life of the individual. Now look at the importance that it has to all mankind. That this is not something that can be voted on. This is not something that we can take it or leave it. The resurrection is an absolute must in the life of the believer and in the church itself. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, here we have a clear evidence of this Epicurean philosophy There's no heaven. Imagine there's no heaven, right? Whatever. You can imagine it all you want. It doesn't make it true. And these Epicurean philosophers had been speaking it so much that it creeped into the church and they started to say, well, yeah, maybe it isn't true. Maybe there is no heaven. Maybe there is no hell. And he's saying to them, how can you, in spite of the evidence, in spite of the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, being seen by over 500 at once, the birth of the Christian church, the change of day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, resurrection Sunday, the radical change in the disciples, their new power and new courage, Jesus' own testimony repeatedly saying, destroy this temple, and on the third day I'll raise it up again. How in the world can you guys in the church say there's no resurrection? This is what Paul's saying to them. If you're here this morning and you don't think the resurrection is important, my prayer for you when you walk out of here is you understand the significance. And you would never preach an incomplete gospel. Leaving Jesus on... Jesus is not on the cross anymore. Amen? That's why I don't have... You know, I'm all about having crosses around your neck. That's great. If you have a cross around your neck, I will ask you why. I love it when I see a waitress or somebody... You know, does that mean something to you? Is that just a piece of jewelry? But let me say this. If you have a cross, you don't need to have Jesus on there. Because he's a risen and living Savior, amen? We've got to be wearing little empty tombs around our neck, amen? <laughs> and so we see here that he is risen and he's saying the significance. How can you not believe in the resurrection? Because if you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't know God. You cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection. Period. That's not, that's not up for a vote yet again. And again, I love the clear picture. It says here, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Christ's resurrection is the ultimate proof of his deity, his holiness, his ability to pay for our sins, the truthfulness of everything he said. He said repeatedly he would raise from the dead. By the way, did you guys know Houdini said he would raise from the dead? Houdini said, 50 years to the day after I die, I'm going to get up out of the ground. And so 50 years to the day after he died, a bunch of people sat around with candles waiting for him to get up. Didn't happen. Now what's amazing to me, Jesus said repeatedly on the third day, not 50 years, on the third day, I will raise again. He said it over and over and over in the midst of performing miracles and walking on water and calming storms and healing lepers, right? And three days later, nobody showed up. Nobody was waiting. If they'd had faith, they'd have been sitting there. This is going to be sweet. Watch what happens to these soldiers when the Lord comes back. It's going to be awesome, right? And instead, they were all hiding and and quivering. And we need to understand the power of the resurrection. You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament. The day of atonement, the high priest would dress in linen and he would go in to make the the once a year atonement and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and the people would sit outside and wait for him as he went into the Holy of Holies. They, They literally wrapped a rope around his, around his waist or his ankle to make sure that if he died in there, they could drag him out. Because nobody else could go in or they'd die. Because only the high priest could go in there. They had bells on the bottom of his, you know, his, his garment so they could hear him moving around to know he was still alive, hadn't been struck down dead by God. So when he went in there, his own heart had to be examined before God. And if he went in there unworthily, if he wasn't the high priest, ask Nadab and Abihu, right? You ask some of these guys who went in there unworthily and got smoked by God. He'd go in there and they would wait. And if he would come out with his blood stained garment and he would emerge from the Holy of Holies, then they knew that the sacrifice or the atonement had been accepted. Who in the world is that a picture of? That's Jesus because, again, on the tomb, they went in and what was there? Those empty, empty blood, the blood cloths, blood stained cloths were there, but he had come out. He wasn't there anymore. And so the Old Testament is a clear picture and so sad that here these people co- proclaiming themselves to be believers in the true and living God were beginning to deny the resurrection. Jesus, our great high priest, was wrapped in linen. He was placed in the tomb. All of heaven wandered. All of history waited. With the offering tape taken on the third day, He was risen from the dead, proving indeed that our sins have been forgiven. Now again, some say that it doesn't matter whether or not you believe in the resurrection. I'll use one of my dad's words, hogwash. Dad's from the South, he's got a lot of those, okay? Hogwash, that's hogwash. You cannot believe and deny the resurrection. If Christ is not risen, there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness, and there's no promise of heaven. Amen? It's absolutely essential. Those who reject it do not know God. Romans 10, 9 says this. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you do not believe that God raised him from the dead, you cannot be saved. And so he's writing this letter back to this church he founded. His heart is broken, and I'm hearing that you guys don't believe in the resurrection. No wonder you're caught up in sexual immorality. No wonder your marriages are a train wreck. No wonder you're suing each other. No wonder you're living for today, because you don't even believe in the resurrection. If Christ is not risen, then there is no hope for mankind. Where would man be apart from the resurrection? Look what he says, verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is empty. If Christ is not risen, we might as well just go home and watch football. Why am I standing here? Why did you get up and sit on these hard chairs this morning? If he's not risen, the preaching of the apostles was a waste of time. You know what? That's why if anybody preaches anything else, it is a waste of time. Amen? It's of no value because nobody else rose from the dead. Our faith is empty. You've got to remember something, guys. Your faith is not based on how hard you believe something. Some people think that faith is controlled by me somehow. The more I believe, the stronger it is, right? If you believe the world's flat with your whole heart, right, you're wrong, amen? If you believe with your whole heart, there is no gravity, and you step off a building, what's going to happen to you? Ah, splat, right? I mean, it doesn't matter how hard you believe it, that doesn't make it true. Your faith is not based on how strong you believe it, it's what you place your faith or who you place your faith in. Amen? That makes it valid. That makes it worth something. And if Jesus is not risen, our faith is worthless. But He is risen, as we are going to continue to see. You can believe it with your whole heart, but you'll still be wrong. What about Muhammad or Buddhism or good works will lead you to heaven? There are many paths to God. You can believe that with your whole heart. It's wrong. It's wrong. Now, my heart is not to come across self-righteous or arrogant. But if somebody believes that they can step off a 50-story building and there is no gravity, it's probably a good idea if I tell them otherwise. Amen? And if somebody believes they can get to heaven through Buddha, that's worse than stepping off a 50-story building. Because it's for eternity. Amen? And Buddha's dead. And Muhammad is dead. And all the founders of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and every other cult that's come along in Christian science, L. Ron Hubbard proclaimed himself to be God, Church of Scientology. How did that work out? He's dead. If your God dies, that's not good. <laughs> Amen? I used to worship him, but he died. It's like buying a pet, right? He died. Well, i get another one, right? That God died, got to get another God. And L. Ron Hubbard died. Whoops. And the sad part is that people still follow that, and if your God is dead, your faith is empty, your faith is futile, you, have, you believe in nothing. I'm praying to a dead God, you might as well just scream down a well, because it's worth nothing. Your faith is futile if Jesus Christ is not risen. As we're going to see in a moment, we would all know, He is risen. Look, He says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we testify of God that He raised up. Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. You know what? Not only is our faith empty, but in light of the fact that if He's not risen, then we're just a bunch of liars. Then everything we say is a lie. And we're, we're no better than the cultist. But again, praise God, the significance and the difference is that our God is indeed a risen and a living Savior. For if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen. If you're listening to the Epicurean philosophers, if you're listening to people today that say there is no life after death, if you're listening to John Lennon's song, Imagine There's No Heaven, and you believe that garbage, then what you're believing is a lie. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we have no hope. We have no hope. There's a good reason why I'm not going to stop right around here. Can you imagine? No, we have no hope if there's no resurrection. God bless you guys. See you next Sunday. (laughs) Let's keep reading. Paul doesn't leave them there. Look what he says. If Christ is not risen, look, it gets worse. Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So if Christ is not risen from the dead, guess what? You're all sinners bound for hell. Oh, Pastor Dave, that's heavy. But that's the truth apart from the resurrection. Amen? Amen? That's why when people say, well, whether you believe in a resurrection or not, it's not a... B- no, it's a big deal. I'm still in my sins. I'm separated from God. I have not been saved. I have no hope of eternal life. And it turns Jesus into a false prophet. And it says that my sins are not forgiven. It gives me no hope. You know what? If Jesus isn't risen, then death has power over Him. And if death has power over Him, then death has power over us. Amen? But when Jesus died, He triumphed over sin, death, and the grave. Amen? And because of that, you and I can have victory over sin, death, and the grave. And that's why we cannot water down, dilute the resurrection in any way, shape, or form. You are still in your sins. Thank you, Jesus, that we're not in our sin if we've given our life to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? If He's not perfect, holy God, He could not pay for our sins. And if my sins have not been paid for, I'm not forgiven, and I am not saved, and I have no hope. Verse 18. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ is not risen, then all who have died have simply been destroyed. If Christ did not raise from the dead, then every believer, everybody who believed in Christ who died, is simply that. Destroyed, dead, or even worse, separated from God in a place of torment. Now, how significant is the resurrection? I know I'm. I know that I'm really hammering this point home, but can I tell you that it's being attacked even within the church today? Well, you don't have to believe in all of it. You know, as long as you believe it, you know, have a belief in Jesus. No, no, you need to believe who Jesus is and what He said, amen? He elevates His word above His name. We need to understand the whole gospel. Can you imagine that means that that would mean that every person who died has not none were saved they're all gone forever and they're a place of torment But praise God that that's not the case verse 19 If in this life we have only hope in Christ we are of we are the most pitiable If Christ is not risen then Christianity is a pitiful joke If there's nothing beyond this life to look forward to, then all the apostles endured for his sake was foolishness. Why did Paul endure suffering? Why did he endure shame? Why was he beaten? Why was he mocked? Why was Jesus scourged? Why did the apostles and our Savior go through so much if there is no resurrection because then there's no hope after this life? Then we might as well be like the Epicureans and say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But praise God that that's not the case. It's foolishness to endure persecution for a lie, but that's not why they endured persecution. They endured it for truth. So we've seen the power of the resurrection transforming the life of the individual. We've seen the importance of the resurrection, how, where we would be apart from it, and now we're going to see the fruit or the promise of the resurrection. We're going to end on a high note. That's a good thing. Amen? Verse 20, But now Christ is risen. Amen? If you have a a pen, underline that in your Bible. Christ is risen. He is risen. He is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As Paul had so clearly proven at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, both in transforming our lives here and now and the promise that we have to come. Now, another Old Testament picture, and you know I love those, they had the feast of the first fruits. You know when that took place? It took place the first day of the week after Passover. So that would be on Sunday. Passover took place. And then the following Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. Passover, those of you who are here for the Old Testament, you know very clearly, a very clear picture of what? The cross. The blood of the Lamb sprinkled on right when they were in Egypt. And if they had the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost in the shape of the cross, then the angel of death passed over and they were delivered. So, whenever they remembered Passover, they were taking the blood and they were remembering that work of the cross. But what I love is on the feast of first fruits, they would take the first fruits of their harvest and they would wave them before God. They would bring in the first fruits and they would wave them before God. And what's interesting is it's one of the few sacrifices where there was absolutely no bloodshed. Now let me tell you why. Because that Sunday after Passover is Resurrection Sunday. And it's not by chance that Jesus, the first fruit of the resurrection, rose from the dead on the Feast of the First Fruits. On the very day when they were waving things before God of things to come, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And what I love about this is that no longer, there was no sacrifice needed on the Feast of the First Fruits because the Passover had just taken place. And you know what? There's no more sacrifice needed for us because the cross has taken place. Amen? We're not dragging lambs in here anymore. Aren't you glad? I'm really glad. I think I'd be doing something else for a living, right? Dragging lambs in here and spreading blood. No thing. Praise God, I live in the New Testament times. How about you? Amen? And so praise the Lord, because of that, there was no blood in that offering because there's no blood to be shed anymore because Jesus Christ paid the price. And praise God, He is the firstfruits. Now it says there, For since man came death by man, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You see this real clear in Romans 5? When I was a youth pastor, I used to write on a chalkboard when I taught Romans 5. Adam, sin, death, Jesus, salvation, life. We were all born into Adam. When you were born of your parents, you were born into Adam, right? The first man, right? We're all related to Adam, and as we were related to Adam, we were born in sin, and as we were born in sin, we're all going to die. But the good news is, in Jesus Christ, we are born again, amen? And we've been born again, we've been saved, we've been set free from sin and death, and we have eternal life. So he says there that in Adam, all men die, but because of Christ, we all can be made alive in him. So Adam sin death, Jesus salvation life, and that's what these two verses talk about because in Adam all men die, but in Christ we all can be made alive, but only if our faith and our hope is in him. Verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Jesus is the first fruits. He was the first one resurrected. Now you might say, well, Pastor Dave, other people were risen from the dead. They weren't, but in a sense, they weren't resurrected as much as they were resuscitated. Because they died again, right? Lazarus raised from the dead, he died again. Right? Other people, Tabitha, they were raised from the dead and they died again. Jesus rose from the dead, he never died. Amen? So he was the first fruits of the resurrection. And it says there, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but when Christ returns, read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. When he comes back, he's going to set up a millennial kingdom for a thousand years. We will reign with him on the earth. Read Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. It's very clear. During that time, we will rule and reign with him, and we will be living in different bodies than the ones we got right now. Praise the Lord. Amen? I'll have hair, okay? It's going to be great, all right? But we're going to have bodies. We're not going to get sick anymore. It's going to be wonderful. Now, in the midst of that time, there will be those who are born, who've gone through the tribulation, and some of those will die. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be set loose yet again. Okay? But during that time, there will be those who were born, and during that time, we will be living in our glorified bodies. So, we will receive those bodies and be ruling and reigning with Him on earth at at His coming, and that's what this verse is talking about. Verse 24. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom of God kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. In the end, at the end of the millennial kingdom, God, you know, God at this point has granted authority to men, to Satan, and even to death. But at the end of the millennial kingdom, all that's going to stop. Satan will have no more power. Done. Right? He's bound for the 1,000-year reign. That's what it says in Revelation 20. At the end of that time, he's set loose so that those who were born during that time have to make a choice between serving God and falling for the lie of Satan, just like every man, woman, and child in history has had to do. And at the end of that time, though, he's going to put an end to it. He's going to put an end to Satan. He's going to banish him, and he's going to be in a place of torment forever. And he's going to put an end to sin and an end to death. Amen? And praise God for that. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that, he will, that will be destroyed is death. Do you know that death is an enemy? Death came because of sin. In the Garden of Eden, prior to sin, there was no death. Nothing died. Animals didn't die. Plants didn't die. Nothing died. Nothing Incredible. But then when sin came, everything started to die. Thorns and thistles came about. Jesus, or God the Father, literally killed an animal and took skins and covered up Adam and Eve after they had sinned, right? The, sh- the shedding of blood for the covering of sin, first, first thing that happens right off the bat in Genesis, a picture of Christ. And at the end, we're going to see that that enemy of death will be overcome, because when we get to heaven, nobody's going to die anymore. Amen? Amen. And aren't you so glad? No more death, no more pain, no more separation from those that we love. What a blessing, what a joy to know all of those things are true. Death is an enemy, but Christ defeated death at the cross and it will be destroyed at the end of the millennial reign when we will, no one will die anymore. Verse 27, For He has put all things under His feet, but when He says all things are put under Him, it is evident that He put all things under Him who put all things under him was accepted. You know, all things are put under Jesus with the exception of one thing, the Father. Jesus is 100% God, and let me make it clear, there is only one God, amen? But one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus will always be the Son, even in eternity. The Holy Spirit will always be the Holy Spirit in eternity. The Father will always be the Father even in eternity, and yet there will always be only one God, even in eternity. Amen? Does that give you a headache? Gives me a headache. Aren't you glad you serve a God you can't totally figure out? Gives me a headache. You know what really gives me a headache? God's always been. Well, where was He's always there? Where's he fifty billion? He was there. Where's it where are we gonna be five hundred billion? We're gonna be there. Well you get a headache, right? Because it's finite man trying to understand infinite God, amen? But Jesus is very clearly always submitted to the will of the Father. Not that he's inferior to the Father. Not that he's less than the Father. But he's a picture of submission for us. Just like in marriage, that God has called wives to submit to their husbands. Wives are not inferior to their husbands. Amen, guys? Amen? Your wife is not inferior to you. She's called to submit to you. That's her role in, your, in the body, in your marriage. But God puts more responsibility on you to lead. And Jesus is the ultimate picture of a heart that is submitted. Last verse. Now, when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God in the flesh. Second part of the Trinity. Trinity again, totally submitted. You know, it's interesting. In the Bible, Jesus came to glorify the Father, and the Spirit came to glorify the Son. Isn't that great? They're always glorifying one another. So, in review, the significance of the resurrection. First of all, the power to transform the life of an individual. You know what? If you're trying to do better yourself, it's not going to work. Ever. It won't help. You might get a little bit better. You might be a little better than you used to be, but you'll never be good enough. That's why Jesus came. Saul of Tarsus didn't... Say, you know, well, maybe I'll, I'll only kill some of the Christians for a while, and then I'll cut back to 10%, right? And then I'll, you know, and then maybe, I'll, right? That's not what happened. He did a 180. The word repent means to turn. It means I was going this way, and now I'm going this way. Maybe you're here this morning, and your life with God is not what it's supposed to be. Maybe you've known about God, but you don't know Him in a personal and intimate way. Jesus Christ is a risen and living Savior who wants to transform your life radically this morning. Amen? Before you walk out of this place, make you a new creation in Him. The importance of the resurrection. If Jesus is not risen, our faith is worthless. He is not God. Our sins are not forgiven. We have no hope of of heaven. But the good news is, Jesus Christ is risen. And the fruit of salvation is that He is God. He is holy. Our sins have been forgiven. Our lives have been transformed. And we have the promise of heaven. Is it very clear to everybody that the resurrection is a non-negotiable? Amen? And when people start talking about, well, my God's as good as yours, really, did he raise from the dead? Well, no. Then you're done. Amen? Risen and living Savior. We're walking around dead in our trespasses and sins until we give our life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you that you are Perfect, holy God, that you sent your Son. And we thank you that your Son is a risen and living Savior. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who has never given their lives completely to you. Maybe they've come to church. Maybe they've even considered themselves a Christian in the past. But they've never truly come with a confessing heart. Repenting, not only believing that you died on the cross, but that you rose from the dead. And asking you to come into their life. Lord, I pray if there's even one person here this morning, they would not leave here without giving their lives completely to you, without asking you to come into their lives and make them new creations in you. And I'm not going to take a lot of time with this. With every head bowed, those of you who know the Lord, pray for those who don't. In a room this size, there are no doubt some people here that don't know the Lord. But salvation doesn't come by you trying harder and going to church enough. It comes simply by you confessing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and asking Him to forgive you, believing that He is risen from the dead. And if you believe that and you want to walk out of here with the assurity of salvation, all you have to do is pray a simple prayer and I want to pray that with you. But the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So it's your heart to know for sure that you're going to heaven. To know for sure that you've been made a new creation in Christ. I want you to simply do something. Just raise your hand and say, please pray for me. I want to give my life to Jesus. Is there anybody here at all? God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else, don't leave here without the Lord. He loves you so much. Anybody else? Let's pray. Everybody pray with me with easy to raise their hands. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we confess that we are sinners. We ask you to forgive us for our sins, to make us new creations in Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is God. That He paid for my sin on the cross. And that He proved Himself to be God by raising from the dead. Help me, Lord, to walk with You. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit. I love You, Lord. I thank You for forgiving me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. All right. This morning, we're now going to go to a time of communion, appropriately enough, in remembrance of the cross and His resurrection. We don't have membership at Calvary Chapel in a moment. The worship team is going to start playing. Just come on up, grab the elements, and go back and sit down and take communion. Remember this, communion is a remembrance of the cross. The juice the is a representation of the shed blood. The blood that paid the price for you and I. And the bread as a representation of his body that was broken for us. Now, when we take communion, three things take place. We look back to the cross, remember what Christ has done for us. We look within our own hearts and examine our own walk before God. A time of